All right, if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, that's where we'll be. Last week we looked at chapters 8 and 9 as Paul gets into the discussion about meat that's been sacrificed or offered to idols. And he says in chapter 8 that the individuals that believe they can partake of this meat in the idol's temple should consider the weak brethren. And in chapter 9, he lists some examples of his surrendering his liberty in order to reach others. And now in chapter 10, what Paul will do in the first 12 verses especially is that he will mention the children of Israel and the mistakes that they made and how they fell from, you could say, God's grace in the old covenant. And then he'll introduce why they shouldn't partake of the meat that's been offered to idols in verses 14 through 21. And conclude with some practical observations about what should they do if the meat has been partaken of in the house. Now, I wondered if we would all fit back here. It looks like we're fitting pretty good. What do you all think? Good. All right. All right. So let's begin in first Corinthians chapter 10. Let's read the first. uh, Let's read the first six verses or so. The first five verses. Excuse me. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea and they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And they all ate the same spiritual food and they all drank the same spiritual drink and for they all drank the same spiritual food and and drank from the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. Verse four. And that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And so let's begin in chapter 10. Paul says, I want you to learn the lesson from Old Testament Israel. Okay, I missed the first five verses, but the first five verses, chapter 10, one through five would be knowledge of Old Testament Israel. That's what Paul's delving into. So don't eat the meat that's been offered to idols in the idols temple. That's his argument in chapters eight and nine. And then he brings up Israel. Now, a few things about Old Testament Israel and why Paul uses them are helpful. Who are the children of Israel, as we would think about them? He talks about our fathers that were all in the cloud and under the sea. What do we know about the children of Israel from the Old Testament? How would you describe them? God's chosen people. That's right. And Paul lifts them up for this reason. There might have been some in the church at Corinth that had this line of thinking. You know, if we really want to, we can eat of this meat that's been offered to idols in the idols temple. It really doesn't matter. After all. We are God's chosen people now, and we know that idols don't count for anything. And by the way, we've been baptized and we partake of the Lord's Supper and we're these spiritual people. And what Paul is doing in these first five verses, and he'll do some more in detail in verses six through 12, is to say to those that may have that thinking. You know, there were some folks before you who were baptized and who were blessed by God immensely and who enjoyed all of these great spiritual privileges. And look how it turned out for them. And so don't develop the mindset that says, hey, because I'm God's special person, because I'm in a covenant relationship with God, God won't punish me. God won't do anything to me. Whatever I do, in fact, is approved and authorized. Paul is arguing the opposite of that. And so he enumerates some of the blessings that belong to Old Testament Israel to say, you know, if you look at the Old Testament properly, Israel had the very same things that you had. Notice what Paul mentions. He says that they were all baptized in the cloud and through the sea. When did that happen? Crossing the Red Sea. You might write in the margin Exodus chapter 13 and Exodus 14 on their way through the Red Sea. Now, you need New Testament revelation to give you this terminology. You read through the Old Testament. You start in Genesis. You might not think of the movement through the Red Sea as baptism, but that's exactly what Paul calls it. They were all immersed in that water through the cloud and through the sea. That's the first thing that he says. And then he mentions something else in verse three. They all ate the same spiritual food. What is that? That's manna. 
Exodus 16, verses 21 through 22, when they saw it the first time, they said, what is it? And that's exactly what manna means. But God brought it down for them every day. They were fed miraculously by God. And he said, on Friday, you gather a double portion because I don't want you to get any of it on the Sabbath. God provided their deliverance. He provided their sustenance. And then this last part, he says in verse 4, they all drank from the same spiritual drink. And they from the they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. And some people read a lot into that. I believe what Paul is saying essentially is God provided for them both with their food as well as with their drink. And he may be referring to several different things. You might mark Exodus 17, 1 through 7. But there are several times when the children of Israel complain about being thirsty and not having enough water. And every time they complained, what happened? What happened? God provided, right? You think about Moses in Numbers 20. He gets so frustrated that he strikes the rock and God says, no Canaan for you, but appreciate this. The water still came out. God was that set on providing for the people of Israel. Even in Moses' disobedience, the water still came forth. And so he's saying, look at all that Israel had. There's nobody in the entire history of God's people, when you think from an Old Testament standpoint, that has been blessed as much as Israel. And so Paul is saying, look at how great they had it. If you go to the book of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter two, he talks about this same thing. The Hebrew writer says, now you remember Israel, but you should take heed lest you also fall because they received all of these spiritual blessings. And still six hundred and three thousand five hundred and forty eight of them died in the wilderness, with the exception being Caleb and Joshua and all of their children, really 19 years old and younger. But the rest of them, they ate this food. They enjoyed manna. They saw the plagues. They saw Pharaoh and his army destroyed as they marched through the Red Sea. And none of that put them in a secure place to the point that God wouldn't punish them. And so as Christians, we need to think about this. Sometimes we may get the idea that, well, hey, I'm a member of the New Testament church, you know, and we say this on occasion and we should be careful. Well, so and so is not really living like they should. But, hey, they've been what? They've been baptized. Hey, at least they got baptized. Right. Baptism is a great thing. Baptism will wash away your sins. The New Testament says that in Acts 22, 16. But baptism also puts you in a situation with God where he demands some faithfulness from you. It's not different. Done. Well, he got baptized, so surely he checked his card and God's going to receive him. The exact opposite is true. Now, even post-baptism, we make mistakes and we fail and we stumble. And the same blood that washed us clean initially will wash us clean again. But we should never think, well, I'm God's person. So it really doesn't matter how I behave and what I do. Paul's saying to these folks, beware of the meat sacrificed to idols. Exhibit A, look at the children of Israel. Now, that is correct. Verses 6 through 12, he gets specific about learning from Israel. Look at these verses, and let's read what Paul says to him about what happened to Israel. So verse 5, this is these are the blessings that belong to Israel. And now 6 through 12, he's going to say, learn about their mistakes. Now, these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as were some of them, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did. Twenty-three thousand fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, but they, because they were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumbling, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example. But they are written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Verse 12, therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. Okay, so Israel's been blessed with all of these privileges, food and drink, baptism and deliverance. Great. How did it turn out for Israel? In summary. 
Starts with not, ends with good. Not good, right? It didn't turn out good for Israel. That wasn't a trick question, right? Not good. Paul gets explicit about why it's not good. He talks about some of their failings, and there were many. There were many. They made many mistakes in their 40 years in the wilderness. And would you mark verse 6 and verse 11? Both of those verses say the same thing. And you might even write out to the margin Romans 15:4, Because in Romans 15:4, Paul says, whatever things were written before time, were written for our learning, that we, through patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. So Israel fell in the wilderness because of their disobedience. We get that. But why was it written down? Why has it been preserved for us, according to Paul, in verse 6 and verse 11? Why did God write the book of Numbers, or have Moses to do that, and write about their failings in Exodus, and give Moses those four great speeches in the book of Deuteronomy to remind them of their failings? Why was it preserved for us? What do you think the purpose is? We're in a wilderness. Yeah, we sing about this camping toward Canaan's happy land. So we're in a wilderness of sorts. But why do we need their mistakes written down for us? So that we don't make the same mistakes. Now, here's another question. And you don't have to answer this one out loud. You can just answer it internally. How good are we doing at that? Right. We can we get on the children of Israel all the time. Right. They all had PhDs and complaining and they all wondered and whined over and over again. But, you know, we have the written record. Are we doing any better than they are? Something for us to think about. They didn't have this, didn't exempt them. They were still held accountable, but we have their example. And so Paul doesn't just grab out of thin air Israel's mistakes. What is he talking about in chapters 8, 9, and 10? What's the issue here? Meat that's been what? Sacrifice to idols. And so it's important. Paul could have listed any number of failings from Israel, but he's selective. He goes directly to their problems with idolatry. And he mentions their failings with idolatry because that's the point. What Paul is Corinthians, you've obeyed the gospel. But beware of playing footsies with idolatry because there were some spiritual forefathers of yours who did the very same thing. And he goes through those mistakes and he's saying idolatry led them away from God. That's the saga of the Old Testament. Israel would not stop serving other gods. And so God eventually said, you're going to Babylon for for 70 years until you can get it out of your system. And that's his point. Look at verse seven. First Corinthians and Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. Question, when did that happen in verse 7? It's interesting. Just hold off on that. Maybe think about where that's found. But Paul says in verse 1, I don't want you to be unaware. Some translations have, I don't want you to be ignorant. The Corinthian church was made up largely of Gentiles. But Paul just starts rattling off all of these Old Testament citations as if either one or two things. They should have a ready recollection of these events and already know them or somehow, some way, go back into the Old Testament scriptures and learn about them. But he's just saying, hey, this is a part of your history, whether Jew or Gentile. Now, there were some Jews in this congregation, no doubt about that, but also Gentiles. And then Paul just starts. You remember what happened with Israel here and you remember what God did for them there as if they're supposed to be students of the Old Testament, which was their Bible, by the way, for them as the New Testament was being orally delivered and then written down and transcribed. So the reason why I'm saying where is this found and where, because it's not enough to take Paul at his word, though we should do that. It'd be helpful when we have time to go back and read the context and see what's being discussed. So verse seven, when he says, don't be idolaters like them, the people rose up to eat and drink and sat down to play. What, what event is he talking about? The golden calf. Exodus 32 verses one through six. That's where you'll find that. Now, 
The interesting thing about the golden calf scenario in Exodus is this. As they were down with Aaron and Aaron says, hey, up, give me your gold and give me your silver. And then he makes this God and Moses. Where's Moses in Exodus 32? On the mountain doing what? Talking with God, right? Getting what? The law, getting the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law. He comes down and Aaron's like a five-year-old kid, right, who's drunk the chocolate milk that he wasn't. It's all on his face. Moses says, what's going on? I don't know. The, the people did this. It's their fault. What's the first commandment in the Ten Commandments? You have no other God before me. They broke the law before Moses could ever deliver it to him. When Moses comes down and throws down the tables and they break, it's a symbolic gesture for what actually was taking place on that occasion. They were literally breaking the law before Moses ever delivered it to him. When Moses says in Deuteronomy 9:24, you've been rebellious since the day I knew you. He was speaking literally as they were getting the law before Moses could ever read to them. No idolatry allowed. They were already ahead of him practicing idolatry. Paul says, don't be like that. Look at verse eight. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did. And they fell in one day, 23,000. And this is a round number. If you go to the Old Testament, there may be a little bit of discrepancy. But what event is Paul talking about in verse 8? It's Numbers 25, when Balaam seduces the children of Israel to practice idolatry. And that that idolatry, much like in the days of Corinth, involves sexual immorality. In the ancient world, one of the ways that people would profess their loyalty to their gods was to engage in sexual immorality. And in Numbers 25, there's a man who engages in this conduct with a Midianitish woman and a man by the name of Phineas, one of God's people. We talked about this in 1 Corinthians 5. He takes a spear and he puts the idolatry to bed. In verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did. And they were destroyed by serpents. And so don't put the Lord to the test like they did. And they were destroyed by serpents. When were they destroyed by the serpents? Numbers 21, 4 through 7. The fiery serpents come and deliver them. And Numbers 21 about them being destroyed by serpents. What's the antidote to that? They're supposed to. Moses puts this serpent on a bronze pole and he says, everybody that looks to this is healed. And Jesus quotes that very thing in John three and follows it with verse 16. For God so loved the world that whosoever believes in him might not perish, but enjoy everlasting life. He's drawing on that event when they were worshiping idols and and being bitten by the serpents. And Moses takes a snake, puts it on a serpent and everybody who looked to it was healed. Paul's saying they were destroyed by serpents. Don't let that happen to you. Let's move through the rest of these quickly. Verse nine. Don't put Christ to the test. Verse 10. Don't grumble as some of them did when they were destroyed by the destroyer. I won't ask for a reference on that one because it happened so much. Paul could be referring to any number of times that Israel grumbled. And then verse 11. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. And then verse 12, wherefore, let him that thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Verse 12 has been used for a lot of things. Sometimes people use it maybe if they have a teenager or something like that. This person starts to, you know, smell themselves. They think, hey, I'm in charge. And mom says now. Maybe quotes this verse may not even be in their mind a Bible reference. Take heed lest you fall. Or we think about a haughty spirit goes before a fall. Be humble. Don't get puffed up. Why is Paul using this reference here, though? What does he mean in verse 12? Let the one who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. In this context about don't engage in the food that's been offered to idols and all of that. Look at Old Testament Israel. And then he just says, by the way. Take heed lest you fall. The one that thinks he stands needs to be careful so that he doesn't fall. What does that mean in this context for Paul's listeners? Okay. 
Mm -hmm. There will be accountability. Yeah, be thinking about what's going to happen. What else? Oh, self-evaluation. Yep. Mm -hmm. Mike? Don't use your liberty to beat somebody over the head. Remember verses 1 through 5, all of the blessings that Israel had. Don't think that you're just so secure that it doesn't matter what you do. Take heed, lest the one that thinks he stands, the person that said, you ever say this about a person in a certain situation? I don't know how they got in that situation. I would never do anything like that. I don't know. How, how did they fall for that? How did you get into that temptation? And find Paul saying, take heed, lest you fall. And this isn't general. It's specific. Israel fell by idolatry. Corinthians, you are trying to make the argument that you can go in the idol's temple and come out unscathed. Let the one that thinks he stands in that position, that thinks it's no big deal, that you can worship idols and still have God's favor, that you can have table fellowship with the idols and God won't do anything to you. Let the person that thinks he stands in that regard take heed lest he fall. And so the message for us would be similar. Maybe we engage in some sin and we think we can have this sort of bargaining agreement with God. You know, I do this deal. I I lie about this. I'm dishonest in this regard. I'm lustful or I'm greedy or I'm arrogant in this regard. But, hey, I'm at worship every time the doors are open. God's not going to do anything to me. Right. Or we engage in some activity that God doesn't want us to. And we think, well, look, I'm God's. At least I'm a New Testament Christian. I'm following. You know, there are a lot of unbelievers. We're in a secular culture that's constantly on the rise in that regard. Hey, at least at least I believe in God. At least I'm I'm making a go of it. Paul would say, take heed. The one that thinks that he stands, you may fall. Look at what ultimately happened with Old Testament Israel. And then this section, he says, flee from idolatry. And this is what we talked about last week at length. But this is really Paul's conclusion about the meat as long as it's in the idol's temple. Paul's statement is you can't eat it. Now, the, the, the final part of this, beginning in verse 25, really verse 23 through chapter 11 and verse 1, Paul will say, if somebody has meat that's been sacrificed to idols, if they buy the meat and you go to their house, then that's fine. But appreciate verses 13 through 24. And let's just read it and let Paul speak to us about what he said to the Corinthians. And the you must not do this because it's idolatry. Verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. But God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure. Circle, underline, whatever you do. Highlight verse 14. This is Paul's conclusion. Therefore, that's the hinge word. Chapters 8, 9, and 10 all come to a head here in verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Your translation may have communion in several of these places. Koinonia, the word can be translated that way. In verse 17, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then, that food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I don't want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he is? Paul says, you can't do this. No partaking of idolatry. Now, look at verse 13. This is a famous verse, and we'll talk about some of what it says and some of what it doesn't. But let's put it in this context. Imagine being a Corinthian. 
You've lived in Corinth your whole life. You grew up there on the weekend. You and your family would go to the idol temple and it was basically worship. Keep in mind. And I had a good conversation with David last week after this. And he was talking to me a little bit about a better way to kind of conceptualize what Paul is saying here. This isn't just a meal for them. This food was worship. This was a a worship meal. Just like for us, what's our worship meal that we partake every first day of the week? The Lord's Supper. It's not an accident that right after chapter 10, chapter 11 is all about the Lord's Supper. Paul does that purposely. They're having their little worship meal, their Lord's Supper in the idol's temple. You can't go to that. And then after you wipe your mouth from that meal, come and sit down at the Lord's table and eat. Paul's saying you can't do it. But imagine being a Corinthian your whole life. And you say, Paul, that's just what we do. I mean, that's who we are. We've always done that. We know it's no big deal, but that's who we are. This temptation's all around me. How can I work on this job with everybody who's going here or live in this community? Paul says, verse 13 for you. There's no temptation that's overtaking you. But what's common to man? God is faithful. He won't allow you to be tempted beyond your ability, but he will provide a way of escape so that you can endure it. What's the way of escape? Verse 14. Run as far away from idolatry as you can. Nobody could say, well, this is just it. Paul's saying God provides a way of escape. You don't have to partake in idolatry. Now, verse 13 has been paraphrased various ways throughout time, I guess. Um, Sometimes people say this. Maybe you've heard this quote. God won't put more on you than what you can bear. I guess that's true, but God's not putting anything on anybody in verse 13, right? There's no temptation that's overtaking you that's not come to man, but God is faithful. He won't allow you to be tempted beyond your ability. God's not responsible for the temptation. That's very important. A lot of people have become frustrated and disenchanted with God because they've taken up this idea that God. And sometimes I've heard Christians say this who are suffering terribly. The Bible says God won't put more on me than I can bear. And I can't bear this. This is difficult. Why is God putting this on me? It's because of a misreading of verse 13. Paul never said God was putting anything on anybody. Now, in times of temptation, God provides avenues of escape. God's trying to get us out of the mess. God's not loading our backs down with more to say, hey, I want to see how strong you are. That's not the God we serve. God is providing the avenues of escape as it relates to sinful temptation here. And it's up to us for look to look to those avenues. And so James one, James says, let no man say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God. God can't be tempted with evil and he doesn't tempt any man. Everyone's tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and then enticed and lust produces sin and sin produces death. Don't be deceived. James is saying, don't be deceived about how temptation works. God is never doing this to any of us. You don't ever have to wonder about this. God has never seen your area of weakness. And you know what that area is. God never dangles that in front of you and say, let's see how far you've come. Let's see how much you've grown. And then you face that temptation to say, oh, I know God wants to see my spiritual vigor and strength, how far I've gone. God doesn't do that. God wants us to run the other way. God doesn't put us in rooms or in areas of life where we're tempted to compromise and say, I want to see how much they can withstand, how much they can tolerate. Paul is saying that's not God. And it's a misrepresentation of God to characterize him that way. God tests us. Yes. James 1.12 says that he puts us through tests and through trials and through difficulties, but never dangles sinful temptation in front of us. Why? Why wouldn't God do that? He loves us. He wants you to win. What was that? He don't know what that's like. God doesn't even know how to play that game. He's not tempted with evil and he doesn't tempt any man. He wouldn't know how to do. He doesn't do that. 
That's not how he is. You know what God's interested in? Hey, would you put a door there? He needs safety. Let's get him out of there. She's struggling with that. Could you provide a way of escape? God doesn't conjure up the temptation. He's ever conjuring up ways to relieve us and get us out of it. And so it is with this idolatry. If you're a Corinthian and you're saying, I'm so used to eating this meal. I'm so used to eating this idol food. I don't know what else to do. Paul says you can run away from idolatry. And guess where you can run for refuge? To the Lord's table. He has a meal all his own. It's called the Lord's Supper. And in verses 23 through 30 of chapter 11, Paul will speak in detail about how you partake of that meal properly and enjoy great and awesome fellowship with the God of heaven. There's no sin. And because we're talking about this verse, let me just say and then we'll move on. There is no sin that any one of us ever has to give into. We all give into sin. Every one of us does to say that we don't would be a sin in and of itself. But it's never the case that I just couldn't help it. Of course I had to. I mean, I'm a human, we say. The Bible argues the opposite. The Bible doesn't say you just have to commit sin. We're not born sinners. Like we we just have, you know, I'm just flesh. That's what we do. No, the Bible's arguing for at least twice born people, people that have been born again to live differently and to say we don't have to. We do. There's no doubt about that. Every one of us, even though we know better and we would hope it wasn't that way. But it's not because we just have no other choice because of verse 13. God provides a way of escape so that we can endure. And that's something to think about. Verses 14 through 22, Paul says, flee idolatry because eating of the meat is participation or it is fellowship. And if you do that, you're partaking of fellowship with demons and you can't do that and have God's approval. Now, hold your hand in First Corinthians and just go to Hebrews chapter 10 briefly. Hebrews chapter 10 and go to verse 26. What do people normally say about the God of the Old Testament? What have you heard about the God of the Old Testament? What do people sometimes say about the way that God dealt with sin in the Old Testament? Sometimes people draw a line down the middle of the Bible and they have two different gods. How is the God of the Old Testament often described? Angry. Yes. What else? Vindictive. Vengeful. What was that? Vengeful. What, what else? Mean. Wrathful. Short-tempered. You make one mistake. Nadab, Abihu, Uzzah, 2 Samuel 6. If you mess up, you're doomed. Is all of that true? Some of y'all are like, mm, well, that's right. That's the right response. Well, kind of, yeah. It's a mischaracterization, right? The Bible says that God is all of those things. He's wrathful, vengeful. But, you know, the Bible says that in the Old Testament, God is also a God full of grace and mercy and compassion. When people in the Old Testament wanted to know about God, the verse that they quoted most often is Exodus 34, 6 and 7. It's the most quoted verse in all the Bible. It's where God speaks about himself. And he says, I'm the Lord, gracious, merciful, long suffering. I want to forgive the guilty. The God of the Old Testament is so gracious that the prophets actually had to convince the people that God was serious about taking them to captivity. They thought that God was so gracious he would never do anything like that. The prophets had to come along and say he's serious this time. He will. And it's amazing that we flip this the other way around. And now we have to be convinced that God really loves people, that God is actually gracious, even in the Old Testament. When Paul concludes in chapter 10 and verse 22, and he says, Are we going to provoke God to jealousy? Are we stronger than he is? He's saying, don't do this because God will punish severely. And people think that the God of the Old Testament is wrathful and vengeful. But the God of the New Testament, how is he? Forgiving, loving, tolerant, merciful. And where do we get that idea? Because of who? 
the person of Jesus Christ comes on and we say now the, somebody talked to God, you know, in the intertestamental time. and He straightened up his act right in the New Testament. Now he's merciful and gracious and compassionate. But it's been the same God all along. In fact, the New Testament says the God God's actions under the New Testament are more severe. Look at Hebrews 10 and verse 26 down through verse 31. If we sin willfully after we've received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. But there is a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the enemies. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment? You see that in verse 29? How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified? And he has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's New Testament. He says it's a worse thing. The punishment's more severe. That's Paul's point in First Corinthians 10. You look at Israel and you say, wow, God on one occasion opened up the ground and swallowed 23,000 Israelites. Be careful. And Paul is saying, do you really want to go to war with that God? Your arms are just too short to box with God. You don't want to do that. You want to obey and live in his forgiveness and his mercy and his compassion. But if you don't, there'll be consequences. Let's round out 1 Corinthians 10 and then go into chapter 11. Verse 23, really through chapter 11 and verse 1. Paul says, walk in wisdom like me. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but all things, but not all things build up. Verse 24, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to a dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. And then just go right into chapter 11, because this is the end of the argument. Chapter two, start verse two, start something else. He says, be imitators or followers of me as I am of Christ. And so Paul is saying in verses 23 through chapter 11 and verse one, Corinthians, you can figure this out. Use common sense. Don't go into a temple where people are worshiping idols and sit down and have a rib dinner. Don't do that. But if somebody says, hey, we're having a party at my house, you're invited. And when you get there, there's food on the table. What should the Corinthians do? Eat it. Say, say your grace and eat the food It's sanctified by the word of God in prayer. First Timothy four and verse five It's just food. But if you get invited and you get to the party and they say, all right, gather around, it's time to partake of the food, which we just offered in sacrifice to Zeus, then what? Don't eat it. Why not? People around you may think that you're engaged in worshiping the idol. And so Paul says the earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof. God's the one that created the food. That's all that it is. But if anybody gets the idea that you're worshiping idols, it's going to be bad. And so use wisdom. And then his final words are in verse one of chapter 11. Just follow me as I follow Christ. Paul was able to do the right thing at the right time and think through things properly. And that's what he wants the Corinthians to do. So they could eat of the meat in private, but just not at the idol's temple. Any questions on chapter 11? 
or chapter 10, down through chapter 11, verse 1. Mike, go ahead. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, baptism is involved in every dispensation that you have. Patriarchal, you've got Noah and company in Genesis 6. You've got the children of Israel in Exodus. And in the New Covenant, you go through water. God's trying to communicate something about water and how people belong to him and how all of that takes place. And so, yep, that's a great observation. Anybody else? Daryl? Yeah, that's a good point. We think about this. How often do we study the Old Testament? Do we know the Old Testament as much as we should? We sometimes think what? We're under what covenant? We're under the new, and that's right. And it would make sense that we would spend more time with the new covenant because that's the covenant we're going to be judged by. But we do ourselves a great disservice to not become acquainted with the Old Testament because you know what's back there in the Old Testament? The God of the new. The examples of the failings of Israel, yes, but also the examples of faith and people that did the right thing, Noah and David and men like Daniel and others. And so we neglect the Old Testament to our own peril. And Paul uses the Old Testament to say there have been examples before. Don't make their mistake. Anybody else? All right. Chapter 11. Let's begin with verse two down through verse 16. And for time's sake, we won't read it, but we'll we'll read some of it. Paul is going to talk about authority and submission before he discusses the Lord's Supper, beginning with verse 17. And 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 16, is about a cultural issue that was taking place in Corinth. Now, you could read any study Bible, you could read any commentary on this and see what they believe. But the reality is we know very little about the circumstances that were going on here. But here is, based on what we have in the New Testament and some cultural background, what we believe to be taking place. There were head coverings that were to be worn by women for the purpose of showing their submission and their respect and authority to men. And there was a certain way that they were to compose themselves. The Corinthian women in the church at one point were not going to wear the head coverings anymore. And Paul, just like with the idol meet at the end here at somebody's house, he's saying the head covering really isn't from God, per se. But you need to wear it because you're in a culture where that is seen as a sign of authority and submission. And you don't want to be seen as a rebel in this society because you want to win the people. And then he talks about hair and people get into a discussion about this. How long should a man's hair be? How short? And what Paul is saying is something that goes back to the law of Moses in places like Leviticus 18. And in summary, Paul's point is men should look like men and women should look like women. And he's saying the length of the hair, of course, based on this culture, was to symbolize something about the way that an individual was um, communicating their their gender toward other individuals. And so he says, doesn't even nature itself teach you that it's a shame for a man to have long hair? Now, how long is too long? Well, I guess that would depend on culture. For some of us, nature has made that decision, right? And so we don't have to worry about it. But Paul's point is, you just make sure that you don't blur the gender lines. And you might read over 1 Corinthians 11 and think, no big deal. But we have come to a day where this is a big deal now. And does the Bible say anything about gender and what does scripture say? So in verse two, Paul says, I commend you because you remember me in everything and you maintain the traditions as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of the wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesied with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But a woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. And neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. 
That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Okay, so let's stop there. Paul is saying this all boils down to what? One word. What was it? Authority. Yeah, Paul is talking about authority and submission. And he even mentions the Godhead that Jesus is in submission to God. He was while he was on earth. And women are to be submissive in this in in the Bible's terminology, submissive to the man, especially a wife to her husband. And Paul is saying, if you don't submit to that, if you disrespect that, then you're out of step and out of line with God. And so he says a man who puts this head covering on, he dishonors his head because he's supposed to be the leader, the head. And putting that head covering on would suggest otherwise. And a woman, if she prays or prophesies with her head uncovered then it's disgraceful and disrespectful for her to do so. She should be thinking about her role in submission and her role under the authority of male headship. And so they were to communicate that by the way that they were adorned and by the way that they were dressed. Paul does mention, and this sometimes comes up in verse 5, that women prayed or prophesied in the early church, and people say, well, what are we going to do with that in light of 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 15? Did women prophesy in the early church? They did. Paul says it right here in verse 5. But Paul doesn't say the context in which that was done. And so Titus 2 and other passages talk about women teaching women and women teaching children. And that wouldn't involve any female leadership in the local congregation. Philip had virgin daughters that prophesied, Acts 21 and verse 9. And so they were able to use and exercise these gifts within the right arrangement in the congregation. And so verse 11, nevertheless, in the Lord, women, a woman is not independent of man nor a man of a woman. For as a woman was made from man, so man now is born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. And what he means in verse 16 is... No church practices this any other way as far as the customs are concerned. So Corinthians, don't be the odd man out and think, well, we can just do whatever we want in this regard. Genesis 1 says this, and we're running out of time, so we'll stop here in verse 16. But it's important for us to appreciate this, especially as we're going through this time of what some people are calling gender dysphoria and all of these things. And especially when the Bible talks about submission. God made male and female both in his image. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Men and women are equal in the sight of God. There's nothing to dispute about that. There isn't just because the Bible talks about women submitting to their husbands and all of that communicates nothing about intelligence or inferiority. It's about the order of creation. And that's why Paul lifts up Jesus as an example in relation to the father, not because the father created Jesus, but because of Jesus's willful submission and coming to earth, surrendering some divine privileges for a time. And he's saying, look, if Jesus submitted, don't think you're less than because you do that. But we should also appreciate God made every one of us the genders that we are on purpose. And there's dignity inherent in that. There's nothing virtuous about wishing you were the other. God always makes this right. He always gets it right. And so we should glorify God in the bodies that we have and in the roles that we exercise. Individuals that are men that have this responsibility of leadership in the home and the idea that women and children are to submit to them. This isn't to be domineering. It's to be the protector, the provider, to be the leader. And the woman in her role is submission. She's to do various things within the home and even within the kingdom of God. Think of any church anywhere that's doing anything worthwhile. There are great women serving in that church to the glory of God. In fact, when Jesus was crucified, where were the disciples? All of them had run and fled. You know who was still at the cross? 
the women. Last ones at the cross and the first ones at the tomb. And so what the Bible says about women is not that they're less than, but that they are equally created in the image of God to the glory of God. And we honor him most when we exercise the roles that he's given us and we don't try to correct him or do things our own way. Next week, we'll start in verse 17 where Paul discusses the Lord's Supper. But thanks for a good Bible class this morning.